Hey guys, we are here with the last word. That's something new that we're starting with Crosstalk where we sit down with the speaker at Crosstalk from this week and we just get one last look at the message, fill in anything that's missing and have a little bit extra discussion. So this week, JD is here because he spoke to us just this week. Um, Hey JD, thanks. (laughs) It's good to be here. It's a lot of fun to do stuff like this. Yeah, it really is. And it's been fun to look at Luke this semester. And so really, I just want to start by asking you personally, how was your preparation leading up to this week's story? I know that with different stories, it's been a different feeling and approach for you going into it. Yeah, absolutely. I think that for me, as someone who, like Luke is my favorite gospel to Mm -hmm. look at, it's something that I come to with a lot of joy. But what I'm realizing this time around is a lot more of the thematic elements from the book of Luke that carry throughout the entire narrative are beginning Mm -hmm. to become clear to me. Like, for example, looking in the story from this week, we have we've been talking about since the beginning that Luke is so interested in showing Jesus's uh, ministry and heart for the, the downcast and the outcast and the sick and the lame and the hurting people. And we even see that played out here mm-hmm. in this week when we look at the story of the tax collector and Jesus using the tax collector as someone hated by society to really teach a lesson about who we are called to be as followers of God. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I felt like somewhere that really that you hit home with was the idea of justification just as a preview to the message that'll come next. But how do you think if you could expand even in a different way than you did at Crosstalk, um, how what do you think is the importance of this passage as we understand justification and as we place it before so much that we learn from Paul biblically on that topic. Yeah, absolutely. I think it's it's really important for us. We get the large part of our theology of our justification from Paul's writings, which is good and helpful and true, but we have to recognize here that Jesus is talking um about this idea of justification about 50 years before Paul writes uh, his his words about this. And so really what we're seeing, and it might not be 50 years, if it might be about 25 to 30 years, but still we can't superimpose Paul's mm-hmm. understanding of justification onto what Jesus is teaching. And so we have to look at what Jesus is teaching and then see how that extrapolates out to Paul. So for example, looking in this passage, we see very clearly that it is humility before God mm. that puts the tax collector in a position to be mm. declared justified by Jesus. And so the prerequisite there is the humility and understanding of our own brokenness, our own sinfulness, and our need for God's mercy. Mm. Yeah, that's so good. I think that's just such an interesting point as we place all of this and look at Luke as a whole. And I think I would just want to ask you what has been your personal takeaway just in JD's life this week from either the preparation or just I know that God speaks to us even while we prepare to speak. Yeah, it it had been really interesting to me in this being one of those passages that I have read and loved for many years as we talked about last night of Mm -hmm. this is a prayer that I have used in my Mm -hmm. own life for a long period of time. And 
having the space and the time to reflect on that, my own personal experience with this, it it really impressed upon me our approach in coming before God in understanding uh, our own sinfulness and our brokenness and need for mercy, and then our position before God, our really our dependence upon Him for our righteousness, mm-hmm. and the necessity there for me is impressed upon Jesus's work, right? Mm-hmm. That we can never do enough, be enough, or bring enough to the table to have righteousness, yeah. but it's only because of Jesus's work on the cross that we can be declared righteous, mm-hmm. that we can stand before God. Yeah, it's awesome. That prayer will stick with me just from hearing that yesterday. Um, so as we close out this really quick last word, I would just ask you, is there anything that you feel like you missed when you spoke this week or that even as people are getting ready to listen to the full message that you would prep them with or give them a little preview or insight? Yeah, I think that um, for most of us as believers, words like sanctification or justification can be these very overwhelming and daunting theological terms. Mm. And I would encourage people to not be afraid of those sorts of things. Like justification is simply understanding Jesus's work on our behalf so that we can have salvation. And so we can throw on all of these sorts of different terms or definitions to go with it. But this is basically just understanding the significance of Jesus's work for us. Mm, Yeah, I love the it's just as if I've never sinned. That's what justification stands for, which I know is simple, but I like that kind of thing. So awesome. Well, we will close out the last word and we'll be back next week. So if y'all want to keep listening, the message from this week will play right after this. By the time I'm getting home, my roommates are just waking up and I'm like sweaty and accomplished, right? Like I've already done something with my day. And so I'm feeling good about myself. I have all of this confidence in the world. I was doing something no one else was doing. I felt fit. I felt strong. I felt fast or what my version of fast is, which is not fast. I'm feeling great, right? And this race, uh, my dad agreed to run with me uh, just to prove that he could still do it. He was actually the year that he turned 50. He's like, I'm just going to run the half marathon with you to prove that I can still do it. And all throughout my life growing up, my dad ran marathons. I remember like going and I was still in a stroller. I would go and we would watch him run marathons. And so as we're getting closer to this race, my dad's given me all of the advice on how to do this thing. Like this is, these are the mile markers where you're drinking water. These are the mile markers where you're drinking Gatorade. Like you're going to take a goo at this mile. And like, he's just given me everything that he had like amassed over all of these years. But, the, but the, like, the most important one or the most noteworthy for me is that when you run a marathon or you run a half marathon, you start, unless you're like world-class, start a pace group back of what you would normally run. So if you're somebody who runs an eight-minute mile, start in the 8.30 pace group or in the nine-minute mile pace group. And so by doing so, basically the, the logic behind it or the psychology is that throughout the entire race, because you started with somebody who runs slower than you, you are passing people the entire time. And so psychologically, you feel like you're accomplishing, right? And so if I'm always passing people, then I'm always going to feel good about how this race is going. And so the race starts, and we're cruising along. We've started a couple of groups, like pace groups back, and 
I'm feeling good, right? Like five miles in, I'm still feeling great, chugging along. And it was that point, my dad said he was going to run pacer for me for the first five miles because I was trying to hit a certain time on this half marathon. And so after the first five miles, I was just going to take off, but I needed somebody to help me with the first five. And so we get to the end of mile five. My dad's like, all right, have fun. And so I take off and I just start cruising. I'm running as hard as I can, trying to get to this certain pace. And at this point, I'm noticing as I'm really working hard that I'm starting to get past. I'm, I am running as hard as I can and I'm starting to get past. And the first person who passed me was a 55 or a 60 year old woman. She, she just comes cruising along past me looking like she's not out of breath at all. And so at this point, I'm like, I have to catch up, right? Like, <laughs> I have the me in my pride, I have to catch up. So I'm trying to catch her and I can't catch her. She is progressively running away from me. And so I keep going and another mile in, there's like this guy who passes me. And in my own pride, I'm like, oh, he doesn't have that prototypical runner's build. I should be faster than him. So I'm trying to catch him, but I can't catch that guy either. And then we get into like the last 5K. So I hit mile 10, I've got a 5K to get done, and I'm just waiting for this thing to be over. I'm done suffering at this point. And I'm cruising along, and this 13-year-old girl just comes ripping right by me, right? Like, she just cruises by me. And so now I'm just, like, counting down the seconds and the number of steps that it's going to take for me to be done. Like, I'm just over it at this point, right? Because what I had done is I had built up my own pride or built up my own self-importance, built up my self-confidence, thinking that I was something that I wasn't, right? I thought that I was, in the grand scheme of marathon running, I thought I had something to add, right? I didn't. I'm just a regular old guy. I'm no different than any of y'all here, right? But I had this inflated sense of self-importance because of I think at some level, it's like this human nature. When we're good at something, when we're passionate about something, when we're knowledgeable about something, we tend to err towards the side of pride or self-importance when it comes to those things, right? So it's the tendency to want to have our voice heard, right? Or it's when uh, you go out and you play a pickup game of basketball, I have to prove that I can, that I can do something that somebody else can't, right? Or I found myself in this this morning, we're having a discussion with all of the men on staff at Cyprus. Somebody asks a question seeking some help in terms of like interpreting something from the Bible. And so I feel the need in my own pride to pipe up to have something to add to the conversation, right? And so we all kind of fall into those sorts of traps on a regular basis because we all want to have value. We want to add value to whatever is going on. And so that race for me was an incredibly humbling experience. That experience taught me so much about really life as a whole. And it helped me as a, in my own pride to take my, my head out of the clouds of self-importance and to really view myself with a level of humility. To be able to look at the people around me and to not think of myself as any better than those people or to sit up on my high horse and to make judgments about people. And so it was a very seminal moment for me as like a 20-year-old guy to have this sort of running experience. 
And our culture today is, is a culture where, quite frankly, the proud reign. Where the proud reign, where if you, like confidence is one of the most highly valued or sought after characteristics. And so if you are someone who has a high level of confidence, then you have a high level of implied importance. Or if you like have the most confidence, then you're the king in the social circle, right? Or uh, if you have the loudest voice, then people believe that what you have to say is true. And it's this idea that, that when we enter into these spaces wanting to prove ourselves of having enough like worth or value or addition to whatever is going on. And if you don't feel confident, then you should just fake it till you make it, right? That's the, that is what we're told. And so it's all about how you carry yourself. And so if you, culture teaches us that those who walk into a room and command the room, those who walk into the room and command attention, those are the people who are going to succeed. Those are the people who are going to be important. And if you're not on board, then you basically need to get out of the way, right? The, the culture, kind of the pervasive ideology of the day is lead, follow, or get out of the way. And those are the sort of the camps that we fall into. And so as a society and as a culture, I think that we fall into this inflated sense of self-importance because we're always posturing ourselves, right? Against the people around us. We're always trying to find our place and we're always trying to find where we have a level of importance in those social situations, right? And so to be the best, you have to believe that you're the best. It's like that classic athlete mentality, right? Or the, the like sign in the locker room when you were growing up. That's kind of it. And so we've become so indoctrinated to this, this way of thinking. And, and that ideology is nothing new. That perspective can be seen throughout history for thousands of years, right? Like if we were to like critically look at the civilizations throughout the Bible, for, for example, that sort of self-importance and pride is what led to the downfall of so many kings and of entire civilizations, right? And so, for example, you look at the, the Pharaoh during the Exodus, right? In his own arrogance, in his own pride, he refuses to let the Israelite people go, and it costs all of Israel their firstborn, right? And then in his pursuit of them, his unwillingness to let them go, he loses all of his soldiers as the Red Sea crashes down on top of them. Or you look at King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon and his own inflated sense of pride, and when it says that uh, like his kingship was taken from him because of that pride. And he was driven away from men and he was ate, made to eat grass like a cow, is what Daniel 4, I believe, tells us. It says that, and that, that imagery is hilarious if you go back to it. It's like, he will be driven from men, he will eat grass like oxen, and his hair will grow long like feathers on a bird. And I think that there's a fourth part about like his toenails basically in there. But you see that, that pride is what precipitated this fall for the most powerful king in the world at the time in Nebuchadnezzar. And what we have seen over the past few weeks in looking at Jesus's interactions with the Pharisees is really most of Jesus's teaching, rebuking, and correcting comes in the form of being directed at the Pharisees' own false sense of self-importance and at their pride. 
And so he's confronting them and rebuking them for focusing on their exterior appearance to others, right? He has rebuked them for seeking the places of honor at dinner. Jesus sits down and has dinner with them, and he flips the social, basically, construct of the day upside down when he says that you are to invite people who can't invite you back to dinner. That dinners are not a way for you to, to posture yourself socially, but rather it's to meet the needs of others. And really what we're seeing here is that a defining characteristic of the people of God is that of humility, of that of humble service of others. And we're going to see that continue today. Uh, at this point in the book of Luke, Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem. And in this section of the book, Luke basically provides little in terms of narrative structure for us as the reader. And what that means is that Luke just moves from one teaching to the next without any sort of like, and then Jesus went here, or Jesus was talking to these people. It just kind of moves from teaching to teaching here. And uh, the the common theme that ties many of these teachings together is, is a simple question. And that question is, who recognizes God as the giver of life? Who, and really you could even shorten that and say, who recognizes God? And Jesus does this and he kind of answers that by a series of contrasting principles. And so what we see here is like in recognizing those intended contrasts that the stories tell is that Jesus is saying, comparing, well, really he's contrasting those who are humble versus those who are self-possessed. He's comparing those who have faith and those who don't. He is comparing those who serve the needy and those who are a barrier to those needs being met. And that theme is going to continue today for us. And and we're going to be in Luke chapter 18, if you guys want to open up there. We're going to start in verse 9. And what we're going to do today, I'll just read it all the way through, and then we're going to go back and we're going to dissect it a little bit. And it says here, To some who are confident in their own righteousness and look down on everyone else, Jesus told this parable. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood by himself and prayed, God, I thank you that I am not like other people, robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. And then verse 12 goes on and it says, I fast twice a week and I give a tenth of all I get. But the tax collector stood at a distance. He would not even look up to heaven, but beat his breast and said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. I tell you that this man rather than the other went home justified before God. For all those who exalt themselves will be humbled and those who humble themselves will be exalted. This, I got to tell you guys, I was so thrilled that I was going to have a chance to talk about this passage. This is one of my favorite parables of Jesus. And so what we're going to do here is we're just going to kind of break it apart verse by verse, and we're going to just walk through these details. We're going to try and pick up the nuance of what Jesus is really trying to teach us here. And so in verse nine, it says that he also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves, that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Luke often warns the target of Jesus's parables. He kind of tells the reader that right up front. 
Like, who is this directed at? And the same thing is true here. Luke tells us that this is directed towards those who are self-righteous, first and foremost, those who are self-possessed and self-important, able at least in their own minds to be righteous before God, right? And on the other hand, they disdain others. It says that they treated others with contempt here. And so on the other hand, their concerns with holiness manifested themselves with exclusions of others, with excluding others from from that space. And it's worthy of note here that that we kind of assume that this parable is directed towards the Pharisees or the teachers of the law, right? Because that's kind of who Jesus has been correcting with this sort of rebuke for a long time. But what we see here is that actually Jesus doesn't direct this at a specific group of people at all. What it really shows here is that this indicates that this teaching is here to warn all who have a tendency to display these characteristics, those who are self-righteous and those who treat others with contempt. And so then he goes on and he introduces us to our characters. He says, two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. And these two men represent polar opposites in first century religious culture. Because you have the Pharisees who have the highest level of religious importance that they could get in that culture. The the, the largest amount of respect, everything that you would want, right? And here then you see that the tax collector was part of the most hated profession. And they were the most hated profession because basically tax collectors were Jews who worked for the Romans. And so they were considered as these traitors. And these, the Jewish people didn't like having to pay taxes to the Romans who ruled over them. And tax collectors weren't, weren't actually paid by the Romans. And so basically, the way that they got paid is that they took extra money on top of those taxes, and that's what they kept for themselves. And so many tax collectors were horribly dishonest and took advantage of people as a result of that. And so tax collectors in first century Judaism here usually didn't come to the temple because of this like very popular hatred against them. And so Jesus here is setting us up with these two characters who are absolutely on the opposite ends of the spectrum here. Someone who has this implied sense of importance and this person who is generally hated by the people around them. And he goes on then and he says in verse 11, the Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week and I give tithes of all that I get. You can hear in his prayer that he is assuming a position of self-importance, this position of self-confidence right here. The prayer begins like he's going to make a prayer of thanksgiving to God, but it never actually gets there, right? He says, God, I thank you, and then proceeds to exclusively talk about himself for the rest of his prayer. The Pharisees, this Pharisee is so certain of his righteousness that he is comparing himself to others that he finds less worthy, right? Those who society would have deemed have broken the law. Those who society would have assumed were unclean. And the reference here to the tax collector shows that this judgmental attitude towards this person, regardless, he doesn't even know him, but he is willing to judge his character based on his profession. 
in essence, the Pharisee's prayer is, I thank you, God, that I am such a great guy, right? If we look at this very objectively, or you could even say like, God, you are so lucky that you have a person like me. He has this like arrogance that immediately turns you off of him, right? And so we see here, like pride just permeates everything that he is saying. And then he follows that up with the reasons that he's so much better than these other people. I fast twice a week and I give tithes of all that I get. Look at me because I am doing all of the religious things that I'm supposed to do. Actually, I'm doing more than what is required for, of me, so therefore I am even more important. On the basis, he asserts his superiority over people. He's gone beyond the call of duty and therefore God should be proud basically, of him. He should be impressed by what this Pharisee is doing. And then we see the all-important but here in verse 13. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, have mercy on me. A sinner. In the prayer of the tax collector, we see the exact opposite of the Pharisee. The Pharisee presumably walked right into the temple, into the inner courts, because he has this religious importance. And we see here that the tax collector is standing far off, it tells us, and he would have been in the court of the Gentiles. And so just quick kind of lesson on the temple here. It starts kind of, we're going to go from inside out. You've got the Holy of Holies. Then you have the Holy Place. Then you have the Court of Priests. Then you have the Court of Israel, which included Jewish men. Then you had the Court of Women. And all of these were inside of the temple walls. And these would have been considered the inner courts because you had to be Jewish to enter any of these places. And then there was a a whole area outside that was reserved that was called the court of the Gentiles. And so what we see here is that this man is standing basically as far away from the Holy of Holies as he can possibly get and still be on the temple grounds. That's kind of the picture that's being painted here. He's off in the far back corner saying his prayer. And this distance in his posture before God shows that he understands his own unworthiness to come before God. What we see here is that he doesn't even lift his eyes to heaven, but he beats his breast. This is a position of shame, and it's a position of humility before God. His words show for us this timidity and this shame in coming before a perfect and holy God. His prayer is a plea for mercy from him who is a self-confessed sinner in this moment. In this prayer, we see no note of comparison like we did with the Pharisee. He's focused only on himself. He's concerned in only dealing with his own, with his own stuff, with his own spiritual health, and he knows that the only way to do so is to throw himself on God's mercy. And Jesus says in verse 14, 
I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. The phrase here at the, at the beginning of verse 14, I tell you, or I say to you, other translations will say, often signals that a significant conclusion is coming from Jesus. Jesus says that the tax collector went down from the temple justified before God. In, in another contrast, Jesus specifically says that this tax collector was justified and that Pharisee was not. Jesus is saying that position in the temple means nothing. Rather, it is the position of the heart that means everything. The tax collector is assumed to be society by society to be God's enemy, whereas the Pharisee is assumed to be holy before God. And the Pharisee does not see himself as actively opposed to God, but in, in, its, in his pride that Jesus criticizes him. The Pharisee is quick to judge others and is supremely confident of his own righteousness. Thinking he knows the truth, the Pharisee is proud and he's deceived. He doesn't find truth. God's acceptance of the tax collector shows the kind of attitude that God responds to and wants out of his people for us. And it's worth noting again, and we've talked about this a lot in the book of Luke, that a person of low social status is again used by Jesus to demonstrate how we are to follow him. We've talked about this from the beginning that, that Luke is, Luke finds it so important that we as the reader understand that Jesus is the Messiah who passionately sought the redemption of the poor, the sick, the downtrodden, the outcast, and even in the case of the tax collector, the most hated person in society. And the ultimate question we have to answer when we're looking at this parable is, what attitude does God commend? What attitude does God commend? Jesus' contrast between the Pharisee and the tax collector provides that answer for us. Humility before God and confidence in God's mercy, not our own personal merit, brings acceptance from God. God desires humility, plain and simple. And we can define humility by understanding the gap between our own personal goodness and God's goodness, right? That we do not confuse our goodness to be equal to that of God's goodness, but we understand ourselves in great need because our own personal goodness is lacking. And this is demonstrated perfectly for us through these two perspectives. We have the proud and we have the self, proud and self-righteous, and we have the humble and contrite. And so the contrast is seen in a variety of ways. The first one is that the men use different approaches in coming to God. They have a different approach in coming to God. And what I mean by that is that somehow the Pharisee manages to refer to himself five times in that simple prayer that he talks about himself, right? And he talks about himself with an active voice. God, I do 
all of these things. God, I am not like these other people. The tax collector instead has God as the subject and takes a passive role in this prayer. He says, God, I am in need of mercy. Help me a sinner. The Pharisee sees his own achievements as abundantly fulfilling the law. So he believes that he is better than other people. And the tax collector knows that before God, he is nothing. And so he has to appeal to God for grace. And second, the men take different positions before God. And what I mean by that is that the Pharisee is certain that he can approach God and almost demand justice as a matter of personal rights. I deserve this. And the tax collector is so conscious of his own unworthiness that he can barely approach God. He barely made it inside of the temple walls because he is so aware of his own unworthiness. And these contrasting positions highlight the major theme of this story for us. And that is that justification is grounded in God's mercy alone. Justification is grounded in God's mercy alone. And justification is critical for us to define and to understand because the word justification is really one of the main theological principles around which the the Christian faith is built. And what we see in this story is that justification involves our standing before God rather than moral perfection or even good moral character. Justification involves our standing with God rather than what we do for God. The the Pharisee clearly possessed a better moral character than the tax collector, at least from the perspective of society, right? He says that he's not a thief. He's not an evildoer. He's not an adulterer. He doesn't take people's money when he refers to the tax collector. He kept the law outwardly far better than the tax collector. Yet, we see that the tax collector is declared justified. The tax collector, not the holy self-righteous person. Jesus shows us that justification involves the forgiveness of our sins, right? Which presumably in the case of the tax collector is, is a lot. It involves the forgiveness of sins, but justification also bestows a standing. And what I mean by that is that the tax collector is declared righteous, right? And it's not a righteousness based on his own uh, ability. It's not a righteousness on what he brings to the table, but it's something that is given to him by Jesus alone. And the result of this declared righteousness is that the tax collector can stand before a perfect God as holy and blameless, that he is forgiven. And the same justification that the tax collector received is offered to us as well. It's offered to us by Jesus through his death on a cross, atoning for our sins, bearing the weight of my sins and your sins. And as a result, we too have the ability to walk before a perfect God as holy and blameless. And what God sees in that is that he sees us through the lens of Jesus's work and he declares us righteous. 
And Paul understands this at, to, to incredible depths, and, and really we get a lot of our theology of justification from Paul's writings. But it, here in, in Romans 3, he says in a very succinct way, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. He starts with a declarative statement here. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And all are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Jesus Christ. That's the definition of justification right there. That's it. That it's by God's work, not our own. I, uh, I had a friend share this parable with me when I was a, I can't remember. It was either when I was a sophomore or a junior in college at this time. And at the time, he, and maybe he still is, he was praying this prayer of the tax collector every day. When he would go and have, he would have his personal time with the Lord, he would go and he would pray the prayer of the tax collector to start that time every single day. And he, one day we're meeting and he is just raving about what it has done in his life raving about all of the fruit that he has seen from this prayer. And so I go home and I say, well, man, I might as well try it. And I prayed the prayer of this tax collector for over two years, every day. Every day I prayed this prayer and I would journal. I would just write. Whatever the Lord laid on my heart, I would write. And so I would come before him and I would enter into my time with God and I would just say, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. And it was the most growing thing that happened in those two plus years of my life was this prayer. And I think that there are two important things that it did in my life that, that I would offer to you guys. And, it, and they're simple principles that we've already kind of looked at tonight. But the first of which is that when I prayed that prayer, it put me in a position to approach God in humility every day. When I prayed that prayer, it put me in a position to approach God out of humility every day. Because I had to, when I pray that prayer, there's no kind of getting around recognizing your own sinfulness and your brokenness and the things that you've done to hurt other people. You can't pray that and, not, and mean it and not come to terms with your own stuff. Right? And in view of those shortcomings and failures, I couldn't view myself more highly than I ought, right? I can't enter into a time with God praying that prayer and be prideful. And as a result, I was approaching God with a great need, understanding my great need for his grace and his mercy alone. Because what I was seeing is that as I approached God, because I saw my own sinfulness, I saw my own undeserving nature for his grace, and it put me in a position to receive it. And the second thing that it taught me is that it allowed me to recognize God's grace and mercy in my life on a daily basis. Because that is our position before God. That we are fully dependent upon him because we don't have any righteousness of our own. Because we can't do enough or bring enough to the table to, make our, to be declared righteous before God. That it's only by his work that we come into relationship with him. And so it puts you in a position of understanding your need, right? And so it, it, for me, 
it dealt with my approach to God, coming to God in humility. And then the second thing that it did is it showed me my great need for God, my position before God. And as we talked about with kind of the definition of humility, the, the kind of the gap between my own goodness and God's goodness, that becomes incredibly apparent. And these two things are indispensable for us as believers because they help us to recognize the full weight of the justification offered to us through Jesus Christ. They help us to understand the significance of Jesus's work on the cross. That we are sinful and broken and messed up human beings, and yet God made a way for us. And it puts us in a position of great need of that grace. To come before God recognizing that we're never going to get there on our own. And we talked about this past weekend, when we understand this, when we understand our maybe the heaviness of our own brokenness, of our own sinfulness, of, of the things that we all have in our lives, and we respond to the gift that Jesus has given us, man, it only puts us in a position of gratitude, right? It only places us in a position where we can have the correct perspective to view the things that God is giving us in our life. It puts us in a place where we can be thankful for all of the blessings and all of the things. And it helps us to to recognize out of that attitude of gratefulness that God's mercy is new every day. Because I'm in dire need of that every day. (laughs) I'm in dire need. And that is how we begin. That is the basis for us as we live. That is the basis for us as we now walk and grow into God's likeness is understanding that justification that has been offered to us.